Welcome to the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Here's Dr. Jana, an NYU professor of human sexuality, and Joe, a guy who's a fan of sex. Hey, Dr. Jana. Hello, Joe. Welcome to episode number 47 of the Science Sex Podcast. Wow. They're just growing in numbers. <laughs> just keep going they? and mm-hmm. going and going. And I know today we're going to talk about something I had to Google. Uh, so again. Soon, I know, again. Yeah. Just, do you always have to blow up my spot like that? <laughs> anyway, we're going to talk about sociosexual orientation. Yeah, at least you can pronounce it. That's great. That's, that's great <laughs> progress. <laughs> I really don't appreciate the mocking of me every week, Dr. Jana, but that's okay. Who we're talking to today? <laughs> we have Dr. Greg Webster from the University of Florida, who's going to talk to us about a study on casual sex desires on one hand and relationship satisfaction and commitment in long-term relationships on the other hand. Casual sex versus relationship satisfaction. And speaking of casual sex, as a lot of people know, you are very much an expert on casual sex. That is a topic that, yes, I may have spent some time doing research on professionally. And from time to time, you go, you you take your casual sex caravan on the road to sp- spread the gospel of casual sex. <laughs> and, and don't you have one of these? Do not spread gospel. I mean, that sounded really cool just then, anyway. Um, okay. Don't you have an event coming up uh, at the I, end of the month? I do. We're not going to be talking about casual sex though we're going to be talking about orgasms female orgasms and female pleasure in particular we're going to be busting some myths about the female pleasure on november 20th i am doing this talk at the bar called subject on the lower east side for a series called think and drink new york city people are drinking and thinking Thinking. a little bit about (laughs) whatever sciencey talks we present to them. And how can people uh, in, uh, be a part of this orgasm caravan? <laughs> oh my God. Know. Now orgasm it's an orgasm caravan, caravan. yes. <laughs> you can go on Facebook and look for a Think and Drink Different NYC and you'll see a link to that event and there are other events and you can also get to it through my website drjana.com and get your tickets. They are $15 online, $18 at the door. So, And they sell out. They have about 75, 85 seats and they sell out. I was just there the other day for another talk on the psychology of music and it was packed cool and yours is november 20th it's busting myths about the female orgasm with my good friend dr jana Vrangolova. yeah you gonna be there probably not <laughs> very good friend <laughs> All right, before we get going, uh, let's give some love to our sponsor, Lilo. Yes, so this episode is brought to you all by Lilo, which is a Swedish manufacturing brand of sex toys, vibrators in particular, vibrating sex toys of all kinds for different orifices and and, (laughs) parts of the body. So they have things that you put on around penises and on clitorises and inside vaginas and inside anuses that have lots of different things. Is there a particular favorite that I could look up on, Lalo? <laughs> I have three, actually. Okay. Can I have three? Sure. <laughs> well, but I don't for... want to limit you, Dr. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, they're for different things. I actually have four. Crap. Oh, jeez. Have... Well, they're really for different things. Okay. So I have one that's when I just want clitoral stimulation. Like, you don't want anything else. You just want a tiny little thing that fits easily into your hand, and you can just put it on top of your clit, and you can actually use it over clothes. Sometimes you don't even have to go directly on the skin because it's a 
it's vibration. So wow. it'll get through a layer of clothing like your nightgown or your, your underwear. Anyway, so that's one of my favorite ones. I guess I'll tell you about the other three in future episodes. Yeah, we're going to run that? out. We're going to Because we're going to run out of time. Yeah, we could do a whole episode about all your favorite sex toys. That's okay, okay, okay. All right, so for now, the Lily 2 as one of my favorite Lalo toys. And you can get your Lalo products by going to Lalo.com and using our discount code Science. So that's Lelo, L-E-L-O dot com, and use the discount code SCIENCE, spelled S-C-I-E-N-C-E. That is a great way to support the show. So if you like what we're doing and you want us to keep going and you need some sex toys, vibrating sex toys, or a few other things that that Lelo.com sells, please go and use our discount code. Uh, I want to bring up a couple of things. And actually, one thing is sort of... An update on a story we did a couple weeks ago. Dr. John, remember when we spoke about HPV? The HPV vaccine that got finally approved by the FDA to go all the way through age 45? That's the one. Yeah, but one thing we didn't talk about was some people's concern that if you vaccinate teens in particular with this vaccine, then they're all of a sudden going to start having more sex or more risky sex and that it's going to be the end of the world <laughs> like it always is. Yes, more sex with... is always the end of the world, right. <laughs> exactly. Well, and this just in, we, a study just came out about this, Dr. Jana, that agrees with you or agrees with your your sarcastic wit that despite fears to the contrary sexual behaviors of adolescent girls stayed the same or became safer after publicly funded school-based HPV vaccinations were introduced in British Columbia. This is a really good study because it is a regionally representative sample of British Columbian teens, ages something like 12 to 17. And because all of the public schools in British Columbia had the, the HPV vaccine introduced, then you can really kind of see comparisons. And they've been doing this study every few years. They've been, oh, okay. yeah, so they can follow how many girls were sexually active before the vaccine and what it's introduced publicly to everybody and have there been changes in that after it's been introduced and in fact there weren't uh, big changes if anything there was a small change in the opposite direction of the <laughs> one that people feared so the percentage of girls who reported ever having sex decreased from 21 percent to 18 hmm. percent after it was introduced so even though that's not a, a massive change still it is a change in the opposite direction so there's really no need for this fear. So the Twitter takeaway on this, 140 characters or less, HPV vaccination does not lead to an increase in sex. If anything, it, le it seems to be leading to a decrease. Oh, boy. <laughs> although, well, yeah. although we can't infer, obviously, causation from correlation, but mm. if there is any, any fear that it might increase, that is not substantiated. So don't fear, parents. Your girls are not more likely to go and get all... <laughs> hot and heavy hot because and they heavy. get the HPV vaccine. Yeah, because they got the HPV vaccine. Can you imagine if that was the case? That a vaccine led to people, you know, driving the, the sex drives or something like that, or the fact that it would just make them, I guess, fearless in terms of having yeah, as much sex as possible. There's always this fear that if you somehow make sex less likely to lead to negative consequences, like sexual health consequences, then all of a sudden all these people are going to start having sex who don't want to otherwise be having sex. But over and over again, we find that that is not true for teens. Whenever you make some form of birth control or condoms or, in this case, vaccine available, it doesn't seem to change people yeah. into having more sex. So that part of the logic should be scrapped. Good. And uh, sadly, in the U.S., most of our sexual health 
policies and interventions are not really, especially on a, on a larger federal level or, or even state level, are not often driven by science. They're driven by ideology and morality that um, is often not based in science, in fact, contradicts science directly. And so, sadly, yeah. I don't think having this data is going to change much uh, how we approach the vaccine here in the U.S. I don't foresee HPV vaccines being introduced in all <laughs> public schools across oh, no. the nation anytime soon. Now, let's keep in the world of sex, since this is the science of sex, but <laughs> read an article about Post-sex blues, something I had never heard about, Dr. Jana. I think I've, I've heard of post-sex regrets when you're like, mm. ooh, why did I do that? I shouldn't have done that last night. But now there's a study about post-sex blues, and both men and women say they have it. Dr. Jana, post-sex blues, what does that mean? What is, <laughs> what is post-sex blues? Post-sex blues is kind of feeling... Feeling down or feeling, uh, it can be a wide range of negative emotions that follow sex and follow not sex that was bad, not sex that was regretted, not sex that was non-consensual or coerced, just like your regular good good old sex that you enjoyed mm-hmm. and you did it with a partner that you like and you you know the relationship is fine it's not like it's nothing wrong yet you feel down you feel maybe sad or irritable agitated anxious depressed the next day or the next several days and it kind of sounds like makes no sense right it does not no <laughs> like good sex should make you feel good yeah <laughs> and there is plenty of research to suggest that good sex does make you feel good but sometimes it can also make you feel this kind of blues or otherwise called postcoital dysphoria oh. with dysphoria meaning kind of this this unpleasant or distressed feeling that follows the coital <laughs> act right and so this is interesting because there's not a lot of research on this topic, but we do have some research suggesting that women tend to experience it. And there's been kind of a, a stereotype that this is something that's much more common in women than it is in men. It, you know, like men are all 100% on top of the world once they've had sex, but women may often experience some of these negative emotions. It might be linked to having all of these positive chemicals that are in your brain while you're having good sex, like oxytocin and endorphins and all of those things, lots of dopamine. And after that, once those chemicals are no longer super active in your brain, it might be kind of a drop. Okay. So, 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 Like a crash almost? Like, Yeah, like you're coming down off of all of those good chemicals and you're no longer so high huh. on them, feeling amazing, right? For, for those people who might be familiar with some of the substances that make you feel different, so cocaine, which is kind of the dopamine in the brain, or heroin or opiate-based yeah. drugs. How about something more common? How about caffeine? You have that caffeine crash. <laughs> right, so it could be caffeine, which is the yeah. same as dopamine. Yeah. Cocaine would be a stronger version of a, of a caffeine rush, yeah. so <laughs> yeah, or uh, for the endorphins in the brain, which are kind of the feel-good chemicals, the euphoric feel-good chemicals that you get after kind of a good good sex- sexual experience, yeah. a good orgasm, that are the equivalent of that in the medical and uh, non-medical illicit and yeah. illicit substances out there can be heroin or morphine or oxy, oxycotin, uh, those kinds of drugs. And so after you've been on them and then you're no longer on them, you can experience this kind of drop yeah. in in because 
you're no longer feeling as amazing as you were feeling. So I think that probably plays a big role. Well, it seems like we need more research on this because a lot of the studies that uh, we've been reading up on only have a few hundred and maybe a thousand people involved in it. So maybe it just requires a little more research. But your explanation makes perfect sense to me. The way you painted the picture with the coming off the cocaine high, which is super relatable to everybody. <laughs> I said, for some people, it might be. And even those who haven't experienced it themselves might have the knowledge of what that might feel like. But yes, thank you for bringing in coffee because that is much more relatable. It's a little more common. Yeah, yeah, a little more common. Dr. John is letting her weekend vibes get involved in this. I'm just saying, there's plenty of research on sex and drugs and stuff. Yeah, but this uh, news is interesting because, as I said, for the longest time, we kind of only studied women in relation to this. And again, there's not that much research, but the little research we did have was on women mm-hmm. and now this new study looked at 1200 men in particular and found that just like in some previous studies of women something about 40 something percent of men as well as women from previous studies have experienced this at least once and something like one in five oh. of both genders have experienced it over the last four weeks so it it is both something that is present in people's lives over time, but then it's also seeming, seemingly somewhat common to experience on an ongoing basis. So before we talk to uh, Greg Webster, a quick word from Adam and Eve. Our other sponsor of the show. Adam and Eve is the largest online retailer of all sorts of sex toys. So I know we already talked about Lalo, mm-hmm. but there is a much larger world of sexy things that one can get aside from vibrating sex toys. And so get all your vibrating sex toys from Lalo, but then everything else that's not <laughs> Lalo, go to adamandeve.com and get 50% off just about any item. And you'll also receive three free adult DVDs, plus a free mystery gift, and of course, free shipping on your entire order. So if you want to help out the Science Sex Podcast, Make sure you get to adamandeve.com and use the code word science. Joe. Yes. You don't like casual sex, do you? I mean, in theory, it sounds fun, <laughs> but it's not something I practice. Okay. You don't practice it, but does it, is, is that, that something that in theory actually sounds fun or not? Because some people, some people you know, really like it and crave yeah. it and desire it, and other people are like, meh, not really my thing. I'll be honest with you. It doesn't sound like something I could do over a long-term thing. Like, God forbid, if things don't work out for me or my mm-hmm. partner, I don't think I could be Jana. <laughs> For lack of of better, for two extended period, I could probably be Jana for maybe uh, a summer. A summer, okay. I could be a summer of Jana, but outside of that, I don't think I could be a year of Jana. Okay, you think you you could be having fun having casual sex for a summer? Yeah, for a summer, summer Mm -hmm. Jana, and then I'd be like, you know what, this is enough. I need to move on and be. I need to find the the next one. The next one. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Uh, We have someone who studied this. Okay. Today we have Dr. Gregory Webster, who's an associate professor of psychology at the University of Florida. He has graduate degrees in psych from the College of William and Mary. Oh, that's where I gave my TEDx talk a few years ago. And the University of Colorado Boulder. He researches personality and individual differences, romantic and sexual relationships, and judgments and decisions about rare and extreme events. Would that be casual sex for Joe? No, don't. Come on. <laughs> Can you continue with the introduction? <laughs> anyway, we're going to have Dr. Greg Webster to talk about a study that he published a couple of years ago about couples in long-term relationships and how their relationship satisfaction and commitment are related to their sociosexuality. Dr. Greg Webster, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on, John. I appreciate it. Yeah. So I was you know, looking at your 
resume, the academic resume, as I do for all our guests before they come on the show. And I noticed that you are just all over the place. You've done research on all sorts of things, like obviously the sex and relationships stuff that we're going to talk about today. Then you've done some self-esteem, narcissism, other personality traits. You've looked at dancing. You've looked at how people make decisions about hurricanes something about biomass fuel burning and blood pressure modification. I have, I don't even know what the hell that means. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, all me, it's all me search, except for the last thing. <laughs> is it all me search? Like, how did you end up getting involved in all of this shit? I mean, all of this stuff, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so it came about uh, as part of, as a function of uh, me being a methodologist. So mm. what I do a lot of times is work with other researchers uh, who need my statistics or modeling or methodology skills. I so we'll see. bring the project. And that's actually how I came about uh, becoming a relationships researcher, is I worked with so many of my friends and colleagues on analyzing dyadic data when there were only a few people doing that. Uh, back uh, 10 years ago. And just to make sure people know what we're talking about, dyadic data. D Joe, do you know what dyadic data is? No. No? I thought, he, he, I, I, thought, I thought he was a Methodist for a second now, but he's, he's a He's definitely not a Methodist. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Maybe he is. <laughs> Are you a Methodist as well as a methodologist? Actually, I think I may have been confirmed in the uh, Methodist church. Oh, my wow. God. <laughs> what are the chances? A Methodist methodologist. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> I may have been. I, I've left the church since, but... Uh, I think at some point, yes, okay. I, I was Methodist. Great. Well, <laughs> what a small world. So, so back well to the done. didactic thing. <laughs> no, not didactic. Dyadic. <laughs> dyadic. It's data on basically two people, and the cup. Oh, say, if you're two? studying a couple, no, no, you you were there, you okay. were there. So a dyad, dyadic okay. data, right? You have two people in a couple, and you get data from both of them, and then you analyze that as a couple. Because if we're a couple, my data is not going to be this is not going to be independent of your data, right? Because we're a couple, we're going to be influencing each other, and so our data is going to be a little more similar to each other than, say, another two people who are making up a different couple. Got it. That makes perfect sense. But it's not easy to do. It's actually quite complicated, statistically speaking, which is why you need methodologists, right. not Methodists. I don't think Methodists, <laughs> per se, would be very helpful with dyadic data, but methodologists are. They seem to be good at uh, enforcing uh, dyads, though. So, there is that. There is that. <laughs> okay, so sorry, that was a very long interruption of what you were saying. But what was your initial entry into research? Oh, a long time ago now. I was looking at uh, aggression. What we did was we uh, had people write essays about themselves, and then we randomly assigned them either negative or positive feedback on those essays. Mm -hmm. uh, then we asked people to um, pair up with a person who. Uh, graded their essays and gave them either positive or negative feedback and to give them a sample of hot sauce for an ostensibly unrelated taste testing study. Okay. They had received information that their partner did not like hot sauce. Mm. So in other words, giving them a lot of hot sauce to eat would uh, be a form of aggression against uh, their huh. partner. And uh, so as you might expect, uh, people who received negative feedback gave a lot more hot sauce uh, to that evaluator than did the people who got positive uh, feedback. Mm -hmm. uh, but we were, what we were really interested in, in with that project is to see how uh, people with low versus high self-esteem uh, would react to uh, feedback uh, such as that. Mm -hmm. And so we found that um, people who have 
an inflated sense of uh, superiority to other people. When they receive negative feedback, they're much more likely to give, give a, lot a lot of hot sauce. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> gotcha. So the self-esteem, yep. aggression, that kind of, uh, that, that's what got you got you started and then took yep. you to all sorts of places. Yes, all sorts of strange and wonderful places, <laughs> uh, all the way to biomass fuel burning and blood pressure modification. We're, uh, we're not going to yeah. go there. No, no, no. Not, <laughs> not going to go there. Nope, nope. That's a it's different not, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> let's move on to the sex part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. let's talk about the sex. Yeah, I guess, okay. I guess you're right. There is some fuel burning and blood pressure modification during sex, so... Maybe we should talk about it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't no, get distracted, no, no. No, no. Don't get distracted. We're talking about people who like casual sex versus don't like casual sex and how they are as relationship partners. So this is a, a topic that's very near and dear to me and my own research, much of which has revolved around casual sex. So I'm always very excited to have people on the show to talk about this. Now, what we're going to talk about today and what your study was about is about this personality trait called sociosexual orientation, which I th I'm pretty sure we've talked about on up. the show before. Yep. You know, we, we have Dr. Webster to tell us yes. what that is, <laughs> to remind you. Yes. Because you haven't, you haven't done your homework. Once he starts, I'll be like, ah, yes, uh, I remember mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. I'm like that kid in the class <laughs> when it, once we get to like question number nine, I'm like, I got it. All right. So. <laughs> I remember from a prior episode that I think Joe uh, has some problems with the whole uh, restricted versus unrestricted distinction, oh. which I have a problem with, too. Mm. Oh, good. Okay. Mm. So, right now, you know more about Joe and what he knows about sexual sexuality <laughs> than Joe knows himself. <laughs> so, okay, let's take a step back yeah. and define okay. what is the sociosexual orientation and how it differs across people. So, sociosexual orientation is a personality trait. What it is, is it basically describes the extent to which a person is restricted or unrestricted in their sociosexuality. And what that means is a person who is unrestricted is okay with casual sex, okay with having uh, multiple partners, uh, and so on. People who are more restricted on the other end of the spectrum uh, tend to be uh, less okay with casual sex. They tend to be more monogamist or uh, monogamish, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and they tend to like to have just one partner at a time and are probably moving serially through their romantic and sexual relationships. It's also not necessarily, I mean, it is, but it, the, the key, I think, is often about how comfortable you feel having sex with someone that you don't know very well. With the people yes, who are on so the nasty. unrestricted end, kind of feeling comfortable having sex with someone whose name they don't know, who you know, someone that they don't feel any particular attachment or commitment to, or don't know anything about necessarily, as long as they're horny and they're <laughs> he's hot or she's hot, whatever, and that's right. all they need. Whereas people on the restricted end are people who need to have a lot more connection and knowledge and familiarity and and, and emotional attachment to the partner. Yeah, so uh, in fact, one of the items, uh, one of the behavioral items on the scale simply asks people uh, how many one-night stands they've had, either lifetime or in a given interval of time. Right. So that's a, a pretty good indicator. So people who have had more one-night stands would be considered to have higher sociosexuality or to be more unrestricted in their sociosexuality. And now why both Joe, who doesn't remember this, and <laughs> you have problems with uh, the unrestricted restricted? The whole idea of restricted versus unrestricted just uh, strikes me as a bit counterintuitive because higher scores on sociosexuality mean more unrestricted. So mm -hmm. it's 
I wish it were some other term, like more promiscuous, but promiscuous isn't quite the right term either. Yeah. Maybe just more sexually open or sexually casual or something like that. I'm not See, really... That doesn't work either. I know. It's, it's hard to find alternative terms to define people yeah. who are kind of on that high end and low end of sociosexuality. I also want to stress that it is a continuum. And right. even though uh, we'll probably end up talking about it in um, categorical terms, in terms of unrestricted versus restricted, it is continuous and it's got a bit of a kind of a bell curve to it. So most people are actually somewhat in the middle, even though that may be weird to think about. Most people score somewhat in the middle, uh, but there are a sizable number of people uh, at the extremes who are, you know, very unrestricted or just very uh, restricted. Joe here is very restricted. Yeah. And Dr. Jana here is very unrestricted. So we, we, we exemplify the two ends of the continuum very well, which, which I love. Greg, right. where are you on the spectrum? I'm somewhere in the middle, You're somewhere I in the think. Middle. Perfect Great. combination. I love we it. We have all sort of Full key spectrum. points, yes, of the spectrum represented. Cool. I keep wanting to call the unrestricted folks slutty. <laughs> We don't do that here. But I I love that term. Yeah. Make it sex positive. Take slutty back. Take That's slutty true. back. Exactly. Okay. I want to take slutty back. So, but I know some people don't feel comfortable. But it, and, and they might not be sluts because, right, you, you mentioned behavioral aspects of sociosexuality. So some people might want to do it, but they're not actually doing it. And other people might be doing it, but not, not necessarily wanting to do it or something. So there are different components of this. So you might talk about sluts and slut wannabes. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's a very important distinction, actually. So one of the things about uh, the the scale that's used to measure sociosexuality is it actually has multiple components or facets to it. Uh, so there are items that reflect uh, behavioral sociosexuality. And those are things like um, with how many different partners have you had sex with in, in the last year? How many partners have you had sex with on one and only one occasion? And so on. And that contrasts with these more attitudinal items, which are things like, I can imagine myself being comfortable and enjoying casual sex with different partners. Or I would have to be closely attached to someone, both emotionally and psychologically, before I could feel comfortable and fully enjoy having sex with him or her. Right, right. So, so more hypothetical, like desire yeah. and attitude around that. What we want versus what we're actually doing. Right. And some people that's conflicted, right? So you might be very high in terms of your sociosexual attitudes, in terms of wanting lots of casual sex, but you might not be getting laid. You might uh, not have access to that. Right. And so the behavioral items on those, you might score quite low. Right. So it's possible to have kind of a mixed strategy here in terms of your behaviors and attitudes. So one thing I did uh, was to look at that distinction between behavioral and attitudinal sociosexuality. And I uh, published a paper with my PhD advisor about a decade ago that actually found empirically that those uh, two aspects of sociosexuality should be measured separately in most circumstances. Right, right. Uh, because and it, it, conflicting the two can kind of lead to perhaps some misleading findings. Right, and it totally makes sense. Because uh, you, know, you, you talked about the discrepancy of high attitudes or desires and low behaviors, but you can also have the opposite right. with people being very yes. sexually active, but not necessarily because they want to be 
sexually active with lots of casual partners, due to some of these desires and attitudes that are internal to them, they could be doing it out of social pressure or because, you know, they're trying to cope with some negative emotion or something like that. And that's a very different kind of, you know, reason to be sociosexually unrestricted in your behaviors than if that was in line with your kind of attitudes and desires internally. Yeah, indeed. And, and you know, some people use casual sex to shop around for a long-term partner, right? <laughs> so sometimes mm -hmm. uh, people want uh, someone, uh, you know, to maybe uh, settle down with, but uh, in order to get to that point, uh, they may go through a period of uh, kind of high right. sociosexual behaviors, even though their attitudes might be Probably on the moderate other end. Or, yeah. yeah, it's like if you want a car, you may test drive many vehicles before you decide to settle down and make that purchase. Because, as you know, buying a car is a very expensive proposition and it's a big investment. So you go ahead and just take as many drives as you can. People aren't property, Joe. Oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Greg, come on. Thank I was supporting you, you there. You could support me a little bit. <laughs> Um, no, I'm, I'm with Team Greg on this one. Okay, yeah, all right. Yeah, but but nice try. I, I love that you're thinking outside the box I was. here. And uh, yeah. I okay. was out in the car. Okay. <laughs> giving you a hard time. Bro. I know, Greg. I love it. <laughs> okay, okay. Tell us a bit about what we know from research and specifically what we knew from research before you published your study on, on these couples about how sociosexuality is related to some of these relationship outcomes? That's a great, uh, great question. Um, so people have looked at sociosexuality and its relationship to a number of relationship outcomes, uh, such as uh, love and commitment and satisfaction and that type of stuff. But the uh, prior research that's been done on that has been done mostly on uh, individuals. And what that prior research has generally found is that on average, people with higher sociosexuality scores tend to uh, perform lower on those measures, or they're reporting kind of lower levels of love, lower levels of commitment, lower levels of relationship satisfaction. And even things like rating their partners as less physically attractive, having yes. more negative interactions with their romantic partners, having lower sexual interest in them. So there have been kind of a, a, a range of things related to how people feel about their partners and their relationships. And overall, the finding had been that more unrestricted, the sluttier amongst <laughs> us are sort of less into these relationships and partners, right? Yes. And that may simply just reflect the fact that people who are high on sociosexuality may be simply less uh, monogamous and are maybe not seeking monogamous relationships. And so perhaps when they get in them or when they have been in them in the past, they feel less satisfied with those uh, relationships, right? So they feel like uh, they can't really express uh, their high levels of sociosexuality in a monogamous uh, relationship. In all of these studies, when they ask about, you know, people being in relationships, have they asked about whether those were monogamous or, or openly non-monogamous relationships? Or is it just assumed that... It's probably monogamous. That's a good question. Uh, actually, a great question. And the studies have either been done on mostly uh, people who are in or have been in monogamous relationships, or they simply haven't asked them, or they've simply assumed that they were. So a lot of this research has been done before uh, researchers started asking questions about things like uh, consensual non-monogamy. Uh, so that's probably potentially a huge moderating effect, potentially, uh, in these uh, results. So people who might be unrestricted 
and in uh, consensual non-monogamous relationships might be quite satisfied with their relationship right. because they probably both have access to a primary partner uh, and they're perhaps able to fulfill uh, their sexual desires and wants and needs with other partners on the side so long as it's okay with the primary partner. Yeah, I mean, that sounds amazing for the unrestricted folks, right? Because you get both those needs for stability and long-term connection and commitment and all that met, as well as all the excitement and novelty mm -hmm. and playing around. So Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that, that has always been my, when, I, when, I've, when I've been seeing these results, it's always been like, yeah, but if these people, if you put the, the unrestricted, the super slutty ones in monogamous relationships, that's a terrible fit for them. Of course, they're going to be less satisfied. Of course, they're going to be less committed. It's a terrible fit. They feel, right. they would feel like they're giving up on so much of who they are to be with this person that it would make sense that they would be less satisfied. Exactly. But if you That's... put them in non-monogamous relationships, would they still be dissatisfied? And um, I haven't seen anybody do that research. Has, has I was that... going to say the reverse. Is the reverse true that if the restri can a restrictive person be in non-monogamous relationships? Would, are they happy in, in a series of relationships if they're restrictive? Yeah, that's a really good point, Joe. I'd imagine that's probably also the case. So you can imagine a person who desires a kind of more restricted, more uh, monogamous relationship, and they're in a relationship with a person who's, let's say, very sexually unrestricted and wants to sleep around and maybe is, you can imagine the person who's more restricted being very unhappy hmm. in that relationship. Right, exactly. So there's this, always this potential for mismatch uh, in either direction leading to unhappiness. Right. But as long as you have a match between the people's level of sociosexuality and the kind of relationship that they've built. So my hypothesis would be that, you know, people who are highly unrestricted would be just as satisfied in non-monogamous relationships as people who are highly restricted in monogamous relationships. They would, mm -hmm. There wouldn't be a big difference in their satisfaction and commitment and love and investment and all of those things for these groups. It, it would be the people who are highly unrestricted but trying to have a monogamous relationship right. who are going to suffer. And also maybe restricted people who are trying to have a non-monogamous relationship, which again, also doesn't fit their needs. Yeah, I, th I think this highlights one reason why individual differences and expectations are so, so important uh, in relationships, both in romantic relationships and, and in sexual relationships. And this is something that I think relationship scientists are uh, only just kind of beginning to uh, get to is this idea that, you know, individual differences matter a lot. Mm -hmm. So a lot of uh, social science in general is interested in looking at averages. What does the average couple do? Or what's good right. for the average couple? And a lot of times that means simply by rule of numbers, it's going to be a uh, monogamous couple. It's going to be heterosexual, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, but when we get into individual differences, we can get a clear picture and showing that there are kind of different paths to happiness for different types of people and different types of couples. Right. And so that's one thing that I've tried to stress in my own research is kind of integrating personality and individual differences into studies of relationships and sexuality right. and trying to figure out, you know, what are the you know different uh, types of personality that make for uh, happier, more satisfied couples. Right. I mean, yeah, it makes sense. Nothing... There's no one size fits all, right? Mm. We have to exactly. take into consideration who are the people who are doing whatever it is that they're doing and what do they want and what is their situation and circumstances and, and who are their partners and all that. Now, so we said, you know, past studies had looked at individuals in terms of sociosexuality and some of these relationship outcomes. But uh, your study that you published a couple of years ago included couples for the first time. So you had 
four different samples. There were two dating couple samples. There was one engaged sample. And then you had a sample of newly married folks. You kind of asked them the same things. You gave them the sociosexual orientation uh, measure and some sexual, uh, some relationship satisfaction and commitment. And what did you find overall? This, the findings from, indivi- from individuals kind of replicate with the couples? In general, uh, yes. So it was the case that uh, people with higher sociosexual attitudes in particular tended to have lower levels of satisfaction and and also relationship commitment in the relationships that they were in. But one thing that was nice about this study, it was uh, the first to look at both members of a couple uh, simultaneously. Uh, So yeah, we got data from uh, both couples. And in this particular data set, we were using uh, some of the data were archival data from other sources and uh, was restricted to just uh, heterosexual couples. So everything that we'll be talking about today uh, are uh, just heterosexual uh, couples. And one thing that we got was we got, uh, as you mentioned, we got uh, dating couples and we got engaged couples and we got newlywed couples. And one thing we wanted to do was to, uh, to look at uh, more of a, a spectrum of types of relationships uh, that uh, people go through, at least um, uh, from dating to uh, newlywed. And we thought that was important because a lot of research still in this literature has been done on uh, people who are solely in college, which usually means uh, people who are dating and not even uh, engaged or wed to one another. Which means they probably haven't been dating for a very long time or haven't been together for a very long time. Exactly. They just don't have the they, they don't have the age or the time to have done that, and also their levels of of commitment or investment in the relationship are at at a somewhat lower level than what you would get with people who just got married, for example. Right, and so one of the things that this study allowed us to do was it allowed us to look at differences between uh, types of couples, and specifically we wanted to look at differences in two levels: one in terms of categorical differences. So we compared and contrasted dating couples with engaged or newlywed couples. And another thing that we wanted to do is look at um, something uh, that was more continuous, that varied continuously across couples, and that was average relationship duration. Some couples had been in relationships for just uh, a few months. Other couples had been in relationships for uh, many years. Uh, And so we compared and contrasted people who had been in kind of longer versus shorter relationships in terms of how their sociosexual attitudes relate to their relationship outcome. How do they matter? They matter quite a lot. So if we start by looking at the simple relationship between sociosexual attitudes and relationship satisfaction, uh, it turns out that, as you might imagine, for both men and women, uh, the higher their sociosexual attitudes, in other words, the more likely they are to endorse things like uh, casual sex is o- okay, the less satisfied they are in these uh, committed relationships in terms of their relationship satisfaction, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that's something we've known uh, before, but it's uh, it showed up in both men and women. Mm-hmm. But what our study was able to show is that the extent of that negative or inverse relationship was uh, stronger, that is more negative, for people who were uh, in dating relationships, and also stronger for people who had been in relationships for shorter amounts of time. 
in other words, as people become more committed or in relationships for a longer amount of time, that negative relationship tends to go away or at least gets smaller over time. So in other words, there's less of a link between sociosexuality and relationship satisfaction. The longer you're in a relationship or the more committed you're getting in a relationship. Right, which makes sense, I guess. You know, these these highly unrestricted people, initially they get into a relationship and they might still be thinking, oh my God, is this the right thing? Should I be still right. you know, fucking around? Should I still be exploring all these other alternatives? But then as this is working out, the relationship that you're in and you're spending more time with them and more... In you're more and more invested, that becomes less of an issue. And that makes sense, right? Yeah. So, so maybe those negative sociosexual or, or the negative feelings they have from having high sociosexual attitudes kind of get beat out of them <laughs> the longer they're in a relationship. So maybe they decide that they're revising their sociosexual attitudes uh, over time because they are, you know, maybe enjoying the uh, relationship benefits that they're getting out of it. However, There's a caveat to this, and then there could be another explanation for this, and it could be a selection effect because mm. we are only sampling people who are in relationships. Right, it who have stayed are, in the relationship, right. Right, who, so people, not get, people might leave the relationship, right? So they might not be in our data set. There might be people who get into relationships for a few months, are dissatisfied because they have high sociosexual attitudes, and they leave the relationship. Right, right. And those simply aren't in our data. Yeah, because you, you didn't get, it's not longitudinal, you didn't follow these people from the moment they got together and then see what happens over time. So Right, uh, that would and, be the ideal right. study. And I think you did, uh, in, in the paper, I, I saw that you did a little little kind of additional analysis just looking at, at uh, breakup rates in one of the samples and it was higher, slightly higher for the people who were highly sexually unrestricted, right? That is correct. That's that's interesting. So we really do need longitudinal uh, data to, to look at this. But I guess there's the silver lining is that if you're highly sociosexually unrestricted and you mm -hmm. stick it out, you find a relationship that works and mm -hmm. you, you, you stick around long enough to get committed to that person, then your relationship satisfaction will not suffer because you have these slutty thoughts. Yeah, it won't, it won't suffer as much. Or as much, uh, yeah. right. And, and uh, I, th I think it's also in important to point out that these are still people who haven't been together for that long, right? right. They're engaged or newlyweds. I think it was exactly. six months married or something like that, mm -hmm. even for the married yeah. ones. So maybe that yeah. whole excitement around the wedding, about the new life starting out together and whatnot, that is keeping that satisfaction at a relatively high level. But then give those people another mm -hmm. five years or 10 years right. and right. the sociosexual attitudes might rear their ugly or excitable little yeah. devil heads and be like, I want novelty. Give me novelty. I'm sick of this guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, that was my little devil. That was, yeah, that was really yeah, good. Yeah. I got scared for a second there. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was frightening. <laughs> scared Greg too. <laughs> Hence why Jana will never get into a monogamous relationship. Hey, you never ever. know. I do. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> When you're four standard de deviations, you know, above the mean... You know. Sometimes, you know, the, the people change. Isn't that what they say, Greg? Sure. I might go from four standard deviations to like two and a half sta okay. standard deviations uh, above the mean. Three. <laughs> maybe three. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, you don't think I could move more than, than one? I, as a brief aside, um, I, I do study personality 
And uh, there is some evidence that people do change somewhat slightly mm -hmm. uh, in their personality over the lifespan. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, sociosexuality is no exception to that. You can change your sociosexuality. Absolutely. Uh, but it probably changes gradually and slowly. But I think if you find a partner who you really like, who might be different from you in terms of their sociosexuality, you could probably still make it work, but it might just take a long time. Talk, talking about personality change, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it is important that all of these personality traits, we do have some level of, of baseline that we have or that we start out with, but that that will change uh, over, over the course of the lifespan. And some people might change more than others and, and all that. But, um, you know, how, how large can those movements be? So if you have someone who is, let's say, three standard deviations to the, to the to high end of the spectrum from, from the mean, they're not going to all of it. So they're super highly unrestricted, right, like right, me. They're not going to change to super highly restricted. That, yeah, that would be rare. But uh, there are also individual differences in the extent to which People change, change right. their personality over time. So some people are fluctuate more highly than others or are less stable in their traits than others. So that's possible as well. But to answer your question, yes, large changes would be unusual. So you're saying there's a chance for Jana <laughs> to right. become monogamous one day. Yeah, quoting Dumb and Dumber, yes. There's, <laughs> there's, there's a chance. There's a chance. Yes. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Okay, and um, you didn't mention this, but you you did have some gender differences that you found in in the study with men's sociosexuality being more related to this kind of lower relationship satisfaction and commitment than right. than women's sociosexuality. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, in these data, when you have dyadic data or data on couples, and here we have heterosexual couples. You can talk about both uh, what are called actor effects and partner effects. Actor effects would be uh, when one uh, person's, let's say that their, um, let's say the man's sociosexuality is affecting his own relationship satisfaction, or the woman's sociosexuality is affecting her uh, or related to her own relationship satisfaction. Those would both be actor effects. You also have what are called partner effects. And that's when, for example, uh, the man's sociosexuality is related to the woman's uh, relationship satisfaction, or when the woman's sociosexuality is related to the man's right. relationship satisfaction. So those are what are called partner effects. And that's what you don't get when you study individuals. When you study individuals, exactly. you only basically get the actor effects. How is your level of whatever affecting your level of whatever else? All right, can you put that in theory instead of saying whatever, whatever, like in, in theory? You just said it. How is Joe's interest in casual sex or lack thereof in, linked to Joe's relationship satisfaction? And that's what you would get in these regular studies where they only study the individuals person. that are not part of, yeah, that, that you don't have the couple data. When you have the couple data, you can study how Joe's lack of interest in casual sex is related to, what's your partner's name? Teresa. How is Joe's interest or lack thereof in casual sex related to Teresa's level of relationship satisfaction with the relationship, okay. right? And that's, that's why this is so cool that when, when you get dyadic data. Cool. Thanks for dragging me into that hypothetical. I appreciate that. Well, you asked for, for me to put this into <laughs> You could have made up a specific. name or something. Okay. Why? No, Joe and Teresa. Teresa. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Is is Joe's lack of interest in casual sex linked to Teresa's level of uh, higher relationship satisfaction? Well, it... <laughs> what did it your study out, say? If they had been in the study... Yeah. In, in our study, what we found was, uh, on average, there is uh, a partner effect linking men's high sociosexual attitudes 
to women's lower relationship satisfaction. However, there was no parallel link the other way, linking women's sociosexuality or sociosexual attitudes to men's relationship satisfaction. So in other words, men who have more unrestricted sexual attitudes uh, tended to be with uh, women who were unsatisfied in their relationships. Or less satisfied, yeah. Less satisfied, yes. <laughs> right. So there might be something about uh, you know men uh, having or at least being in relationships and presumably monogamous relationships and harboring this, uh, these attitudes about uh, having wanting to have more unrestricted sex uh, and that uh, somehow making the women involved in those relationships less satisfied, perhaps because uh, they know about it uh, or because maybe he's kind of behaviorally uh, leaking that information through maybe just right. flirting know, or trying to flirt or something exactly. like that. And then she feels like she yes. needs to work to keep him in check. So in yeah. fact, yes, the fact that Joe isn't very interested in casual sex is probably linked to higher satisfaction on Teresa's part, who is in relationship with him. Correct. That's, that's exactly what the study was finding. Oh, that, cool. But basically you're saying that it doesn't matter whether Teresa doesn't want casual sex, that wouldn't be related to Joe's relationship satisfaction one way or, or the other. Correct. At least that's what we found in this uh, sample. We don't really have a good explanation for why there's that gender difference. Hmm. So we don't really know why that's the case, but it's what we found uh, in these data. And no one's done the moderation with type of relationship in terms of consensual non-monogamy versus monogamy, right? Correct. And that would be a great study for someone been, to do. I've been wanting to do that study for so long. Greg, who has that data? Someone has that data that I don't have to collect. Yeah, maybe data. one of the Justins has it. One of the Justins, yeah. I could. I mean, that would be such an easy, quick paper to write. I mean, Timberlake has it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the Justins you were talking about, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, cool. someone's got to bring sexy back. <laughs> oh my God, this is Me all. Me and Greg coming. are BFFs. I like Greg. <laughs> okay, we need to uh, wrap up here. So, uh, we like to ask our guests at the end uh, a little bit of a of a take home message, if there is one from their data, from their studies, from what they've learned. So. Aside from what we're already talking about, about it being a good fit and trying to find a relationship structure that fits your personality. I think it's important to get to know what your partner's sociosexual orientation is. So you should probably try to pry that information out of them if they're not forthcoming with it mm. uh, early on in the dating or sexual uh, relationship. Uh, because I think it's a fairly important uh, individual difference and in knowing what your partner wants uh, you know, as a lover and in the bedroom is usually pretty important to uh, a satisfying uh, relationship or even to sexual satisfaction. Right. And that's a great point. I think very often we've been told that that's not the most important thing or not an important thing. So you, you people will often think about, OK, what are our similarities and what are all these characteristics that we should be matched on? And yet... Mm -hmm. This often isn't one of those things that that people at least consciously think about. Oh, are we well matched on things like sex drive and interest in sexual novelty? And you, know, you should probably do it sex. in layman's terms because I can't imagine walking, uh, t you know, sitting down your significant other and saying, uh, "What is your sociosexual orientation?" <laughs> so, I mean, you could give them the sociosexual orientation inventory <laughs> revised. It right. has nine questions. You know, <laughs> but if we're talking about takeaways, Greg, uh, we should probably just say, "Hey, listen," and let's not use that kind of terminology. Maybe to start, maybe later on in the conversation, you could bring that up and talk about scales and everything. But I think early on, the first sentence. You 
you probably shouldn't hit him with that right away, Greg. <laughs> no, probably not. You know, you know what I'm thinking about doing. I, I think uh, you know when you you hand your phone to to get someone's digits. I uh, should just have it open to a nice little app that has the, the nine sociosexuality <laughs> questions to it. You're still topping in nine numbers, but you're rating each one of those questions. Oh, my first. God. It's a different kind of nine digits. Yes. I love it. Greg, you shouldn't be telling this in public. This could be a billion dollar app here. <laughs> I don't okay, know what I've, you're thinking over there. Okay, I'm going to set up a corporation with the three of us. <laughs> yep. And uh, I'll talk to my friends on Wall Street. We'll set up an IPO. Beautiful. And, Great. Uh, I get things going. <laughs> Sounds good. No, but I think that that is a really good point that people should know their partner. Well, they should know themselves first. So I think everybody should take the, the SOI. Oh, yeah. Uh, so important. Yes. Oh, that's, that's like step one. Know right, thyself. Right. Know thyself, then yeah. know thy partner. And this is an important characteristic that we should think about matching up or pairing up with someone who is relatively similar in that regard or even if we make a decision that we're going to be with someone who's who's very different from us in sociosexuality i think I, i think those relationships do have a chance of being happy and healthy and and lasting a long time but it has to be a very conscious decision and you kind of have to take that into consideration and decide how are you going to manage that discrepancy let's say if you're restricted you're not particularly interested in casual sex and other partners and whatnot and you pair up with someone who is quite unrestricted there's a way you can you can have an open relationship where that person your partner yeah. who's the sluttier one goes around and sluttys it up in some ways that as long as you're okay with that yeah. whereas you don't do that and as long as that's fine for everybody involved yeah. that's fine it's almost like But, the d- don't ask don't tell too if you don't care <laughs> if your partner you say you're satisfied at home and you don't care whether your partner goes and mm-hmm. as using your term sluddies it up on the side you can you can have a perfectly happy relationship yeah but it has to be thought about and yeah. discussed and negotiated mm-hmm. that you're going to have this kind of relationship and that everybody agrees to that and is okay with that yep that was amazing dr greg webster thank you so much for being on the science of sex podcast hey thanks for having me jana and joe it's been a pleasure cool we'll hit you up uh, so let me know how, how much money i need to raise on my end for that <laughs> app and then uh, we'll get together soon okay i'll, I'll have my people talk to you <laughs> <Yeah, yeah. laughs> sounds good you know he seemed like a fun guy you know next time you go to morocco with him can mm-hmm. can i get an invite kind of <laughs> nice maybe if you're really nice to me <laughs> i'll do my best but i promise i will be back here next week Next week, indeed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that a good enough commitment? Because you're not big on commitment anyway, so is that a good enough commitment that I will see you Look, next week? I've been so committed to you. Ooh. Look, I've shown up here again and again and again, Wow! week after week, for over a year now. I think that speaks to my ability to commit. <laughs> it, 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 it really speaks highly of your character. It certainly does. <laughs> Dr. Shad, can you tell me who will be joining us when we are back together next week? <laughs> next week, we're introducing you all to a researcher who has published like 15 papers just in this year, just in 2018. Is that published. a lot? It, that's a lot of papers okay. for one year. And he uh, his name is uh, Menelaos Apostolou from the University of Nicosia, which is, do you know where that is? God, why do you do this to me? I have no idea where Nicosia is. Cyprus. Oh, so Cyprus. It's okay, by, Cyprus. by Greece. By, by Greece, by Greece okay. yes. And he's done research on all sorts of things from do straight people like their partners to have some same-sex attraction? Mm. Like do, you know, do, do men prefer like bi women and do women prefer, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, from do people like aggressive and humiliating sexual play to are people single by choice like he's done some really interesting research and i can't decide what we're going to talk about with him because there's 
you know, 15 different things that we could talk wow. about. So I don't know. We'll figure it out. It's like a sexual potpourri. It's a sexual potpourri. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we'll we'll find out. All right. I'll bring the hummus and I'll bring a gyro uh, for next. G- giro. 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 Oh, giro. Yeah. Giro. I'm sorry. Giro pita. What? Giro pita. <laughs> Forget it. Oh, Americans, man. <laughs> we'll see you next week. <laughs> Bye. To connect with Dr. Jana and Joe, go to the scienceofsexpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod and follow us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast.